Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, how to spot the warning signs of teen depression and substance abuse amid the pandemic. The University of Minnesota is looking for healthcare workers to participate in a year-long COVID-19 study and some Minnesota ties to the Super Bowl. But first, COVID-19 and fallout from last summer's riots continue to dominate the agenda this week at the Minnesota Capitol. MNN's Bill Werner joins us for a recap. Scott, commanding a fair amount of the spotlight this week is Governor Tim Walz's request for an immediate $35 million appropriation to help law enforcement prepare for the upcoming trial of four officers accused in the death of George Floyd. Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington told House lawmakers... We want to remind you that the Chauvin trial, which is slated to begin on March 8th, is only 34 days away from jury selection. Harrington said they want to get out ahead of it, not be in a reactive mode. So that it doesn't start burning and so that we can prevent the damage and we can prevent the looting. Cambridge Republican Brian Johnson objects a $35 million special fund. It's basically taking funds from greater Minnesota to pushing them down into the metro area where the Minneapolis Police Department is not doing their duties. Governor Walls says... Unlike the end of... Uh, May in a spontaneous situation. This is not spontaneous, and we can anticipate. We will hope for the best, but we will prepare for the worst. House Republicans said the governor's $35 million request misses the mark. Deputy Minority Leader Ann New Brindley says law enforcement from around Minnesota has said... They're not concerned about the finances of this. They are concerned about the demonization of law enforcement. And, and that continues in the city of Minneapolis. State Public Safety Commissioner Harrington responded a lot of law enforcement agencies assumed after what happened last summer that for the upcoming trials they would be sending in riot police. And what we're saying to them is, no, if we do this the right way, you're going to come in and prevent crime and you're going to come. You're going to prevent disorder. The bill cleared its first committee on a fast track in the Minnesota House this week, but as lawmakers prepared to head home for the weekend, the answer from Republican leaders in the Minnesota Senate was a resounding no. Minneapolis cut over 100 police and $8 million out of their budget for public safety, and then they're not paying their bills to all of those other communities that came to help and that's just never right. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says they will not create another $35 million fund after the governor raided an account meant for natural disasters to help Minneapolis and St. Paul recover from the riots. He says state aid to Minneapolis should be withheld in the amount that the city has not paid outside law enforcement agencies for assistance rendered during last summer's civil unrest. A wall spokesman responded just before Christmas, Gazelka asked the governor to urgently consider a 76 $6 million funding request for Minneapolis. The spokesman says Republicans must clarify if they've changed their position and adds, quote, messing around with local government aid to punish the city of Minneapolis is not a serious plan to prepare for what will be a global event when the officers go on trial. And now on to the latest political wrangling over COVID-19, a bill repealing the governor's emergency order and allowing all Minnesota businesses with safety plans to reopen, move toward a floor vote in the Republican-led state Senate over objections of the Walls administration, Assistant Health Commissioner Dan Huff. What happens in one sector of our state, be it in a gym, a bar, a restaurant, or other businesses, 
spills over to the rest of our community, including those who are most vulnerable. Brooke Park, Republican Jason Rarick, responded reopening essential businesses did not cause a spike in COVID and other businesses should have that same option. To be able to put in place a plan to keep their customers safe, to keep their workers safe and keep their businesses open and alive. That bill facing a tough road in the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House. And Republicans who control the Minnesota Senate also moving ahead with a bill that would repeal the governor's COVID emergency authority to close schools and impose other restrictions. Bill sponsor, Rochester Senator Carla Nelson, says that decision should rest with school districts. And Nelson says current restrictions are hurting children. I had a first grade teacher call me two nights ago to say for the first time in her teaching career, 75% of her first graders do not know their letters. Democrats say the governor's current restrictions give school districts latitude to reopen classrooms, but only when it is safe for students and staff. All this in the context of testimony this week from top epidemiologist Dr. Michael Osterholm, who told a Minnesota House committee because of emerging COVID variants or mutations, he says the darkest days of the pandemic are yet to come. A real possibility of seeing a major surge of cases this fall into early winter here in Minnesota throughout the United States, which if we do, I am convinced it will be much more severe than anything we've seen to date. Osterholm says he will advise federal officials to delay the second dose of vaccine so more people can get a first shot. It turns out with the first dose, we really do get remarkable protection. Um, And that would mean we could get more of our over 65-year-old age group vaccinated. Meanwhile, Minnesota Senate Republicans this week said the Walls administration has its priorities wrong and is not getting enough COVID vaccine to vulnerable seniors fast enough. Breezy Point Senator Kerry Rood. Family members rushed out to the website and it crashed. And then we decided, well, let's do a lottery. Well, that's a good idea because our seniors are so important to us. Let's do a lottery and see who see who comes out on top on that. Governor Walls said over 35,000 Minnesotans age 65 plus would have access to COVID vaccines this week at more than 100 locations across the state. State Health Department's Chris Ayersman says doses are becoming available as the state completes vaccinations for health care workers and nursing home residents. As we have fewer and fewer people in that group to vaccinate, we will have more doses available for our seniors. But there's still not enough vaccine. Everyone agrees on that. The state was approaching the 500,000 mark for the number of Minnesotans getting a first dose of the COVID vaccine. Minnesota's population, 5.6 million. And I'll let you do the math. And one of the top Democrats in state government, House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler, this week renewed the push to legalize recreational marijuana in Minnesota. Our priorities are to end the black market for cannabis and move to a safe, regulated marketplace where consumers know what they're getting. Winkler is getting support from some Republicans. The key word there is some, as he states the argument. Cannabis got almost as many votes in South Dakota as Donald Trump did. An influential Republican, Farmington Representative Pat Garofalo, making a similar point. The fact that the state of South Dakota, which is not quite a liberal bastion, (laughs) the fact that the state of South Dakota, one of the most Republican states in the country, in a referendum legalized this, tells you that the standard political narrative really does not apply. But in the Minnesota Senate, Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says, although he's open to looking at additional medicinal uses for cannabis, quote, I would not consider legalizing recreational marijuana as a Minnesota priority. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Change a light bulb, save some green. Just replace traditional light bulbs with energy-efficient bulbs and fixtures. If you're like most people, 20% of your home electric bills go directly to lighting. Every light we switch to one bearing the government's Energy Star label uses at least two-thirds less energy than older bulbs. Such a light will save more than $30 in energy costs over its lifetime. Brighten your environmental future. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Distance learning is having an impact on the mental health of many of the state's children. From depression to drug and alcohol abuse, the pandemic is taking a toll. But Cindy Doth with Hazelden Betty Ford says there are warning signs if your child is in trouble and there are ways to help. What we have seen in regards to young people specifically, uh, roughly uh, maybe 17, 20% of the youth Um, are actually receiving help right now for any underlying mental health concerns. Um, We know that there's been uh, difficulties with students um, having so much alone time and being somewhat disconnected. And so that the depression and the anxiety symptoms are much more pronounced. Um, We see individuals are using alone right now, um, roughly Nearly 50% of adolescents are drinking and smoking all by themselves. And then nearly 25% end up breaking social distancing so they can use with friends. So between the substance use, the increase in anxiety and depression symptoms, um, COVID-19 has really had a, a significant impact on the youth. In terms of how that's sort of pushing kids towards alcohol and drug use, what do we know about the connection between, uh, let's say, the uh, completely having their lives upended and the isolation? How does that necessarily lead to drugs and alcohol? That part gets to be a little challenging. <laughs> a little challenging. Uh, immediately when I hear your question, I, I think about... Um, the youth right now doing remote schooling uh, within uh, most districts that I work with. They're, the adolescents are um, at home more often without supervision. Without supervision, um, without some accountability, without some of those um, protective factors, and school being a protective factor, um, their use increases. Um, there's an ability to use. What we have also identified is that Um, Parents oftentimes are finding themselves using more substances, drinking more, um, given their working from home pattern, and they end up um, struggling with um, role modeling um, permissive use to their youth. Um, So youth end up getting some mixed messages within the home about uh, is using okay or not okay. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about that, the idea of uh, role model behavior in just a moment. But first of all, I'm wondering, are there certain things that parents should be looking for in their children? Um, warning signs that their that their children are a using or b that they may be depressed or suffering from anxiety. That's a great question. Absolutely, one of the the biggest signs that I think we end up seeing is a drastic change in their behaviors. So somebody might be sleeping a lot more um, or not sleeping at all. Um, it's kind of those ends of the spectrum. Um, changes in eating patterns. Um, where they're uh, seeking a lot of those comfort foods and um, and almost binge eating, uh, or they're anxious and it's really difficult to eat. They're depressed and, and food is not appetizing to them. Um, we also can see some mood changes. Um, those, again, the drastic changes in their mood where they're um, really irritable, anxious, um, isolated or withdrawn. The ends of the spectrum oftentimes are indicators that there's either a substance use or a mental health difficulty going on. But part of the difficulty when we see both substance use and mental health is that those signs and symptoms of each mask and mimic each other. That what looks like substance use could really actually be a mental health difficulty and what could be what looks like a mental health difficulty could actually be some signs and symptoms of substance use. So in those instances, it's so important to be able to have a professional um, meet with a young person um, and start to assess and screen for any kind of substance use or mental health difficulty. And that kind of was leading into what my next question was going to be. Other than um, seeking out professional help, what can parents do to help kids through this time? Obviously, we're all going through the isolation, most of us are, just as much as our kids are. So how are we able to to help them and ourselves through this? One of the best things I think that we could all do um, in this time of difficulty is to talk about it. Um, oftentimes, you know, when we greet each other, we say, oh, hey, how, how are you? How are you doing? And, you know, the typical response then is, I am fine. Um, if we can find it within ourselves to openly and truthfully answer that, you know, I'm not okay today, I'm really lonely and I really would need somebody to talk to. Um, if we can be honest with how it is that we're doing and we can talk it out, talk openly about it, it can help reduce the intensity of the symptoms that we might be experiencing. Um, it, with that, I think another key piece also is to validate. It's so important to be able to validate each other's experiences. It's not a matter of I'm more depressed than you or I'm much more lonely than you. It's a matter of your experiences are your own and they're uncomfortable for you. Um, and if we can find it within our hearts to be able to validate each other's experiences, um, it brings in a sense of community. Well, that's really good, useful information, Cindy. I appreciate it. Is there anything else that you wanted to add this afternoon? Um, going back to maybe some of those tips and tricks for, for parents and families, um, you know, I think, yes, talking, um, being able to go and, and have an assessment, um, I would really encourage parents to also listen um, and listen with the, with the sake of I'm providing you with support or am I listening where you're needing some direction and help. Um, oftentimes, I think parents jump into situations with, um, I need to be your problem solver, where, where maybe the young person just needs um, the parent to offer the support. So, I, um, I, yeah, one of the other tips and tricks, I think, would be just to not just uh, talk about it, 
um, but to be able to listen real um, intently as well. Thank you to my guest, Cindy Doth with Hazelden Betty Ford. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Back to Minnesota Matters. The University of Minnesota is looking for healthcare workers willing to participate in a year-long COVID-19 study. Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. The focus of this study is to gauge how the stress of the pandemic is affecting the lives of healthcare workers here in Minnesota and across the country. The results from the study will help healthcare systems better determine how to best support the health and well-being of employees during the COVID-19 crisis. Joining me today is Ryan Demler, an epidemiologist with the U of M's School of Public Health. He's here to outline the goal of the study. We are interested in surveying healthcare workers to try and understand levels of stress, anxiety, uh, and depression as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're also exploring various behavioral and biological risk factors for developing COVID-19. And from what I saw, uh, enrollment has been pretty strong so far. Yeah, we've had a decent response rate so far. Uh, Initially, we've screened over 800 individuals um, from some targeted advertisement locally. And we're now sort of ramping up advertisement to become more national. So we could invite people from beyond Minnesota to participate uh, in the research study. And for those interested, what kind of a commitment can study participants expect? They will mainly be asked, to complete a series of questionnaires over a course of 12 months. Um, So one questionnaire that's a little bit longer and maybe takes 10 minutes to complete would be asked three times. And then there's a very short questionnaire that we ask about every two weeks. And that's just a quick um, uh, query of whether or not they've recently been diagnosed uh, and if they're having signs and symptoms. And then we ask a question or two about vaccinations. That generally takes two minutes and you can do it on your cell phone. Dr. Demler, can you give us a few examples on possible survey questions? We're asking a number of different questions uh, about the atmosphere of the work that they're um, that they're in, whether or not they've been previously diagnosed with COVID-19 or have colleagues or family members. We ask them about the stress that they're experiencing and where their concerns are coming from. Are they concerned about exposing family members? Is that what's partly driving the stress, so they're concerned about their own health and well-being. And then we're trying to uh, ask and inquire about things that could make it better. You know, would um, fresh food on the work site be helpful? Do they need more PPE? Would they like more testing, for example? Uh, And in asking those questions, we can feed it back to healthcare organizations, which can maybe actually do something and change the work environment to help improve um, the health and well-being of the healthcare workforce. And for a healthcare worker listening today, what is the best way to enroll in the study? The best place to go would be to go to the University of Minnesota School of Public Health website. Um, and if you search for a healthcare worker study in uh, my name, Ryan Demmer, or my colleague's name, Jane Fulkerson, um, who's also co-leading the study with me, Uh, There's a description of the study that can get you linked into enrollment. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Ryan Demler, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. There will be more Minnesota Matters after this.
Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So, ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. When the Tampa Bay Buccaneers take the field to play the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 55 Sunday in Tampa, there will be three former U of M players in uniform. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has their stories. Scott, let's start with a couple of guys who grew up in Minnesota dreaming of playing in the big game. Tampa Bay rookies Tyler Johnson of Minneapolis and Antoine Winfield Jr., who spent time growing up at Eden Prairie before moving to Texas to attend high school, are both contributors to the Buccaneers. Johnson was a record-setting receiver for the Golden Gophers, holding nearly every record in the book, and says it's amazing to have made the Super Bowl in his first chance. Man, it's been a crazy year. Honestly, coming in, I didn't know what to expect. I've been able to be around some great guys, um, some great ball players. There was times where I was kind of frustrated about not being able to be out there and the small things like that, but um, it taught me to be patient, to uh, stay humble and hungry, be a hungry dog. A hungry dog is a dangerous dog. I've been able to take bits and pieces of their game, put it in the mind, see how they work, and you know, whenever the time comes for me, um, I'm definitely going to be ready. Johnson says he's come a long way since playing high school quarterback at Minneapolis North. Playing quarterback at high school, this only my what, my fourth, fourth or fifth year playing receiver. But uh, I would say that um, once I became a receiver, I understood um, why it's so important to do the small little details that a quarterback needs of you. You know, because um, timing, timing is huge and it comes into play. But um, as a quarterback, you don't know how the receiver has to adjust, has how he has to react to certain things and certain looks. But um, I feel like you get an understanding, a better understanding with what type of coverage is and how defensive players play. So um, everything definitely ties in together. Johnson says he's proud to represent his hometown of Minneapolis in the Super Bowl on Sunday. I feel the pride of Minneapolis big time. You know, every time I open my phone, I get a notification. I just see nothing but my jerseys down the timeline or, just the dimensions that I'm tagged in, and it's wild, man. It's very unreal, and it's so much love and support that I got from my community that I give to my community that they give to me, um, and it's definitely going a long way, a very long way. Johnson says he and Winfield have to pinch themselves sometimes. There's been times throughout the playoffs where we'll be like, yo, we really here. Like, this is crazy. So I'm sure whenever we get to the stadium on Sunday, it'll be another moment like that where – we just chop it up for a little bit and be in disbelief real quick. Like, yo, this is this is really happening. But like I said, we 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 gonna just go out there and ball. Johnson says he and Winfield came into college at Minnesota together. They grew as players and men together. We went from doing doing uh one on ones in college nearly every day versus each other to 
basically doing it here at the pros. So um, it's, it's, it's a big blessing. You know, Antoine's a great player. He works his tail off day in and day out. He's smart and he loves the game of football. And I'm sure you can see it every time he steps out there on the field. Winfield says of being teammates with Johnson in Tampa. It's crazy. Um, every time I see Tyler, I'm just like, man, like we in the Super Bowl. It's crazy because we both came into college together and um, we got drafted on the same team together. Now we're here about to play in the Super Bowl. So it's uh, been an amazing experience to um, have that with one of my friends that that I played together with at uh, different levels of the game. So it's been awesome. As mentioned earlier, Winfield spent his youth attending school and playing sports in Eden Prairie, while his dad, Antoine Winfield Sr., was a defensive back for the Minnesota Vikings. Sr. played in 191 career NFL games and never made a Super Bowl. Now the younger Winfield's in the big game as a rookie. My dad was excited. I think I feel like he was more excited than I was uh, after when we uh, beat Green Bay. He, he was the first person that uh, had called me, and I talked to him, and he was out there over there yelling, uh, screaming, just talking about congratulations and, and everything. So I thought he was more excited than I was. Winfield says going to the Super Bowl means a lot to both him and his father. It means everything. My father played for 14 years, never went to the Super Bowl. I'm glad at least one Winfield could get in the Super Bowl, and, and that's me. And so um, it, it's been everything. Uh, we talked about it ever since I got drafted about going and being in this moment, and it's just surreal to actually be here. And so I'm just soaking up everything again. You know, it, it, it'll be a great feeling. Winfield says he's learned so much from his dad, and it continues each week during the season. My dad is like another coach. It's just like having an extra meeting, but at home. So um, throughout the week, we're watching first, second down, third down, uh, going over situations and how I'm going to play different situations based on who we're playing. So we'll get at least like an hour in a day of film together, just setting up home and him just giving me uh, tips and uh, clues on what I could do to play better or play different things and different looks. So um, it's been great having him because he's been a huge part of my success and being able to play at the, play at the high level. There's one other former Gopher playing in Sunday's game on the other sideline. Chiefs linebacker Damian Wilson played for the Golden Gophers in 2013 and 2014. He made first-team All-Big Ten in his final year. He won a ring with Kansas City last year and says winning two in a row would be amazing. Oh, man, that would be a little piece of history. That would be great, man. If we can run it back, I mean – that's what we plan for, man. I mean, <laughs> I hear the lose. That'll send us up to a great offseason. It would mean mean so much, man, just to gap two rings. How many people can say that they've done that? Wilson says he has fond memories of his time in Minnesota with the Gophers. Top memory would probably be to be uh, the first time that it snowed, maybe. Uh, being from Mississippi, we never saw snow until I went up to Minnesota, man. But Football related, um, I'll probably say it'd have to be probably my junior year when we uh, we took every trophy we can you can think of except for the axe. I mean the Governor's Bell, Florida Rosedale, the little brown jug took that one. We took them all except for that that elusive axe. So that would definitely be top two right there. So it should be fun to watch. And if you are watching the game Sunday, Wilson wears number 54 for Kansas City. Johnson wears number 18 for Tampa Bay. And Winfield wears number 31 for the Buccaneers. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening. And please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.